0: Yeah, finally, episode two end of Finding Japan. Ha, fu, hafu. Good evening. This is Terence. Your host for Finding Japan, and I am recording from Tokyo, Japan. It is about 10.37pm in the evening, and we'll just keep the day... You know, whenever you listen to this will be the day that this is. Uh, That does not make a lot of sense, but that's okay. It has been a while since I've podcasted. I might be a bit rusty, but that's okay. There are a few reasons why why it's been a while. Uh, One has to do with the fact that I did record an episode. Man, that must have been almost a month and a half ago now. But I just... I didn't like it. I just There was something about the episode that just wasn't what I wanted to do. Didn't have the confidence, the just go for it, balls to the wall kind of feeling that I wanted from an episode of Finding Japan. Since it has been a while, just so that you guys remember, I have taken the show over from uh, Chris, the former host, host emeritus of Finding Japan. And now I will be your uh, host going on from here on out. Let me tell you a few things that's been going on in my life since I last talked to you a while back now. Uh, I recently had a birthday. Yes. (sighs) Thank you very much. It was December 1st. I am now 37 years old. Yeah. Silly old man, but that's all right. Life's pretty good. And what else has been going on? Uh, Well, what do I want to talk about today? Today's episode, first thing, well this is actually kind of a coincidence, what I wanted to talk about for a while, is I wanted to talk about race in Japan, being mixed race in Japan, uh, those kind of things, so about a week ago I went to see a movie called, I went to see a movie, I went to see a movie, this is fun isn't it, I went to see a movie called Haf, H A F U. Hafu is a term, it's a Japanese term that refers to mixed-race people, people of half Japanese descent and some other ethnic background. And it's a documentary, and you can check out more information about it at hafufilm.com. Go to that website, check it out, it's pretty interesting. And I wanted to watch that episode first, that watch that movie first, and then talk to you about it. So basically what happened was last week after I finished work at uh, said fruit company, um. I went to this cool kind of, it's a cafe, restaurant, but they also have like a movie theater space, a couple of movie theater spaces. They play a lot of indie movies, documentaries. They also have film events. In fact, a couple weeks ago, um, I had helped a friend make a short movie. He made a short film, kind of a collage of scenes, and he wanted to talk about how, what is the good life and what is happiness. And I was the narrator for that. So that movie played a couple weeks ago at an event, along with some films by some other people I work with. Uh, just people who you know do this out of hobby, uh, for fun. So anyways, it's a cool place called Uplink. It's in Shibuya in Japan, Tokyo. And I went there, because I wanted to see the movie Half. Hafu. And, man, it was um, quite amazing. It was a wonderful movie. So basically, the story is that it, several stories of... ...several true stories, a documentary... ...of several people or families... Uh, ...individuals or families... ...who are of mixed race... ...so someone in the family... Uh, ...maybe one parent is Japanese... ...in one case it was a family where... ...the father is Japanese, the mother is Mexican... ...so the kids are half Japanese, half Mexican... ...there was a woman who was of uh, Korean... ...and Japanese descent... ...there was a man of Ghana... Ghanaian, Ghanaian and Japanese descent... There was a man of Venezuela, I think Venezuelan, Venezuelan, I can't even say it right. Maybe Venezuela. I apologize for that. I think he was Venezuelan. Venezuelan and uh, possibly Colombian. I can't remember. Anyway, I'm making motions that obviously you can't see. But um, also of half Japanese descent. So several of their stories. And so, for example, the Ghanaian man. I'm going to refer to them by their other ethnicities just to make it easy. The Ghanaian man, uh, his mother is Ghanaian. And she had married a Japanese man and had lived in Japan for a little while. And he was actually born in Ghana, Ghana but came to Japan when he was a little child or a little baby about. And had grown up in Japan in various orphanages because his mom just... It was difficult for her to be a black woman in Japan. And her husband, her Japanese, his Japanese father, had a hard time handling that. So he grew up in Japan. In some orphanages. But he seemed really well adjusted. And what he was doing in the movie. Or what his story was at the time of the movie. He was about close to 30. Uh, What his story was. Was he was helping to uh, build schools in Ghana. By gathering money in Japan. And he wanted to build a school. I think he had already successfully built an elementary school. And was kind of working on a junior high school. And you know just really cool story. About his idea of his identity and what it meant for him to be to be very much culturally and environmentally Japanese, but at the same time have this root have these roots from Ghana. And to while identify himself as Japanese and be very comfortable in Japan at the same time experience a lot of discomfort, not a lot, but some discomfort because of people who would treat him very differently. He said one incident when he was in elementary school, he was playing soccer with some friends and he fell down and hurt himself and he cut himself and he started bleeding. And his friends ran over and some of the other kids were playing. he was playing soccer with ran over. And they saw him bleeding. And one of them remarked, oh, his blood's not green. And the other kids went, yeah. And they were all surprised. And his reaction to this was to think, wow, it wasn't just one kid saying, wow, this blood's not green. All the other kids going, oh, yeah, it's really not green. He, has, he bleeds red just like we do. And his realization at that moment that that's how they saw him. They saw him as... Alien. You know, green blood is what Vulcans have, right? So that was really interesting. Uh, another interesting story was about the uh, the woman whose mother was Korean. I'm sorry, her mother was Japanese and her father was Korean, but she was basically raised by her mother. But she had relationships with her, grandma, her father's mother and it's her Korean side of the family. But she, as a little child, she would go over to their house and they would eat things like kimchi, you know, the fermented cabbage, and other Korean dishes. And she would think that's normal. And she often wondered why, like, wow, so many people who come over to the house speak Korean. And she even remembers when, as a little girl, not understanding what her grandmother was saying. And her mother just telling her, oh, your grandmother has a very thick accent. She has a very country accent. And not, not country in a way to demean the fact that the grandmother was Korean, but just was not ready, the mother was not ready to explain to her child that, you know, your grandmother's Korean, that's not Japanese. And so in place of explaining, she just kind of said, hey, yeah, your grandmother has a real, you know, she has a real thick accent from where she's from, you know, a real thick Japanese accent. In Japan, there are many dialects, so she just has a very different dialect was the point. It wasn't putting down uh, the fact that the grandma spoke Korean. Uh, You can wonder about the issues, you know, about not explaining to your child that, they have a different ethnicity, a different cultural grouping. But the mom's reasoning was that she really didn't want her daughter to suffer to outside in society, she just thought it would be easier. Her friends all thought that she was Japanese, that if her her teachers thought she was Japanese, that would just be easier for her. There was and there still is a lot of kind of resentment and suspicion and kind of alienation of Koreans in Japan. You know, this is a complex history. I'm not an expert on it. I know, I have a friend who's um, a researcher. He's Japanese, but he researches uh, minority issues. And one of his main topics is the Zainichi Koreans, the Koreans who live in Japan, Japanese uh, residents, Korean residents of Japan, special permanent residents. And uh, so, anyway, so her story was that, you know, eventually when she was around 15 or in kind of in the early mid teens, she her mother finally sat down, and talked to her about all that stuff, and said, "I have something to tell you. Your father's really Korean." And she remembers just being she knew uh, in a sense, but it had never been spoken of, and so it was this kind of her mom's intense feeling of trying to protect her daughter was, I think, what really seemed to move her, shock her, and really was she mentioned it as a trauma and so she you know dealt with that and even as she grew up and started dating she remembers one of the things she always thought about when she dated a japanese person was when am i going to tell him that i'm korean that i'm half korean when do i tell him i'm half korean when do i tell him i'm half korean what is that going to mean you know i don't if i like that person i want to date them but if i tell them too early they might be surprised but if i wait you know just the struggle with what is the reaction going to be and she said that by kind of chance or just you know in life experience one time she first the first time she dated a foreigner she dated a I think she said it was a peruvian he was peruvian and she said hey you know i'm half korean and his only reaction was just to go oh yeah that's great because <laughs> i i'm sure look it's not that peruvians don't have their own you know racial issues or ethnic issues but for him yeah okay i'm dating a japanese person koreans they seem that's okay that seems kind of normal and kind of another asian you know okay that's all good So I think she was relieved from that. And she said after that, that after that, she, because of that relief and that difference and that acceptance and that, oh, that person's a foreigner, too, or even more so than she is. And so it was very comfortable for her. So she said after that, she started dating. She primarily dated a non-Japanese. And uh, in fact, towards the end of her scenes in the movie, or partway through the movie, they revealed that she was married to a Camero- someone from Cameroon. And uh, she seemed very happy. She seemed, you know, he just likes me. And it's just like, when I understood how much she me. adores me, I just, you know, she felt like she could relate to that person and have a really nice relationship. And so that was, for her, a very wonderful thing. And so, you know, she married that guy. And they had a scene of them eating together. He seemed like a very quiet, just really nice guy. And they're having dinner. And she's like, is it good? And he's like, oh, it's a, it's really good. And she says that's the way he is. Just everything that she does, he's just happy. And he doesn't complain. And he's just like, you know, the connection's really nice. And what she mentioned that I thought was really cool is not that she said, you know, if I were to marry someone else, it's not that she would not consider marrying a Japanese person. But she just said that... and. Now that she's older and she's come more to terms with her identity, she felt she felt she could be a lot more comfortable and that you know, she wouldn't mind if that's what came along next. But she's married right now to a Cameroon some Cameroonian, someone from Cameroon, and she's very she seemed very happy. And then there was the family of the, the Japanese man who worked in the States and met uh his future wife who was Mexican. She was living in the States too. They have a child and two children and their oldest son, their older son is kind of in, I think at the time of the film, fourth grade and going on fifth grade around there and kind of struggling in Japanese school. So they first sent him off to Mexico for a few months, probably summer vacation, just to go live with the relatives. And he spoke a lot more Spanish. He was a lot more confident. Then he came back to Japan, but was enrolled in an international school and just seemed to be having a good time and having that ability to be himself and to really shine as himself. And that was really interesting. That was a nice little story. And another one I thought was interesting was the Venezuelan guy who, uh, Half Japanese, and he married someone who's also Japanese and half something else. I can't remember what she was, but the story was mostly about him and him, him um, starting this group called Mixed Roots Kansai. He, I think he lived in he lives in Osaka or in the Kansai area, you know, Western Japan, the, my old stomping grounds, somewhere near Kobe, um, Osaka, that whole area. Shout out. Anyway, uh, so he found this founded this group where people of mixed descent could gather. And at first I think it was online and then it became, they started meet do meetups and now it's been like five years. And I actually kind of want to go out and find this group. I mean, they're going to be in contact, but I want to see if they have anything going on in Tokyo If there's some related group. I'd love to join something like that. I think that would be great. So I thought that was really cool. And I, what I liked was the term, his use of this term mixed roots in Japan. There's been a lot of, um, some issue with the terminology of what you do with people who are of mixed descent. Um, there are words that are now out of fashion or considered insulting. One is called, like, konketsu, which means, like, kon means mixed, and ketsu means blood, so mixed blood, um, which in and of itself I don't think is particularly insulting, but I think it got a bad stigma to it, and so it's, people have stopped using it, it's considered impolite. Um, it's probably a little bit like saying, you know, in the English, if you said someone, you're a half breed or something, it sounds really, you know, kind of not so nice. Um, and then the word that the movie is named after is hafu. So half, which is interesting because one of the points that was brought up in the movie is I forgot who said it, but someone said it that which person in the movie said it, but someone said that if you think about it, half is something In America, we might say I'm half Japanese. I'm half something. I'm half Spanish. I'm half Ukrainian. You know, I'm half African. Whatever it is, you might mix something. You mix them. You don't just say I'm half. You're half what? Because we have so many ideas of what half is. Um, But just to say half, it's almost like as if the word comes from half breed, right? And there's something about that that's very animal, animalistic, or very like kind of a little bit degrading, dehumanizing. So, there has been arguments about let's use the word double in Japan, daburu. And so, daburu is like you have two things. So, it, you know, but I, but I think the weird thing about that is that yeah, sure, I might have two cultural backgrounds, but does that mean like I have something like two times as much of something than someone else who only is Japanese or only comes from a home of both English-speaking parents or whatever you know, whatever the composition of your home linguistically, ethnically. Might be, or national nationally, Um, I just think that's kind of strange. So I'm not insulted or bothered by the term. It sounds kind of stupid, you know. It's like trying to attribute attribute some benefit, but do you really feel in in this society that it's actually a benefit, or you just want to say that and so you can feel good about what you're, you know, you can feel all kind of forward thinking and good about it. I don't know. So, um, yeah, you know, it is what it is. So. I thought that the term mixed roots was a very was a very cool thing. You know, it's our roots. Whatever your ethnicity, your your parents, ethnic, national, linguistic background is, that's a root that you have. You have that root if you're a person of non-mixed descent. You know, mixed I mean in America it's a little bit hard to imagine. Maybe I would like broadly say if both of your parents are white and no one is of like no one is close to the ethnic origin. You know, your, your parents are both white and you don't go home and have a Polish-speaking grandmother. You don't, you know, your mom doesn't speak English with an accent. I understand that white Americans, you know, one white person can be, have everything from Irish and German and Native American and also African and all sorts of blood in their, in their, in their bloodline. But if your immediate family and you're one generation back is primarily identifies as English-speaking, Caucasian, and likely is Protestant or or Catholic. I think you know that can consider can be considered one ethno cultural group is what I want to kind of say. Uh, it's not technical. I don't want to you know don't please don't write me about the technicalities of race and ethnicity. Race is largely a construct. Ethnicity is mildly better. You know, linguistic national families, while can be more clear than ethnic, ethnicity or race, especially, are, can also be blurry. But you know what I mean, you know, so the bread and butter, bread, vanilla bread. No, it's getting bad, right? Kind of, you know, culturally Anglo, English, American. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But anyway, you know, it's. It makes you wonder. So I saw the movie and I was really moved, you know, by these people's. Sometimes by their struggles, by their optimism, by their positivity. Sometimes a little bit by the undercurrents of anger or resentment. You can feel that they've had to overcome. But overall, I think the movie is really positive. Really nice. And I thought that it made me want to speak a little bit about my own experiences. Um, in case you don't know, or you do know, but I should make it clear. My mom is Japanese. She's from Yamagata, the northern part of Japan. And my father is... African-American. He's from Mississippi. And he w- had served... He's still around, but he served... He had, I guess that still works. So, um, he served 30 years in the Navy. And he first came to Japan in the 60s once. And did a... I think he did a tour of duty or served... was stationed in Japan in the 60s for a few years. Moved back to the States. Was stationed somewhere else for a little bit. And came back to Japan in the 70s. And at that point, he met my mom. And... Uh, you know, eventually they got married, but, uh, was not initially approved of. My grandfather by that point had already founded the family business in Yamagata, which was a wedding company or wedding chapel or yeah, uh, wedding business, the the business of helping people get married. And yet my mom and dad did not have a wedding. They eloped because grandfather did not approve and grandfather died when I was one from lung cancer. Um, I am not sure if this is just something that I kind of like, I don't know, half made up or misheard or thought I heard, but maybe not, was not true. Or maybe my, it's just kind of something my mom said, but it might not have much basis. Apparently he had my photo either, you know, next to his bed or under his pillow or, even you know, with him, he probably did have a photo of me. I was his first grandson. He probably had a photo of me somewhere, but you know, he passed away when I was one. Uh, I was the first grandson in the family. My uncles, uh, both of them have daughter, all daughters. Um, most of my cousins are actually a little bit older than me, but they were all girls. So I was the first grandson. Um, you know, Not that to me that means much, but to a traditional Japanese family, that must have meant a lot. That their daughter had, had the first son in their family, but at the same time, she was the daughter who married a black man. You know, strange how life works out like that. But eventually, uh, my grandmother and grandfather... My grandmother and my father, my Japanese grandmother and my father, eventually met. And uh, my grandmother went to... Sh- at, upon meeting my father, she went to shake his hand. And he didn't take her hand and instead gave her a big hug. If you've ever seen the movie, remember the Titans. There's a scene in the football, high school football movie about the... Racially integrated football team, school that gets becomes racially integrated, and the football team has to learn to, you know, get along with each other. And the and the white captain of the team and the black captain of the team at first, you know, they don't like each other, but then they end up respecting each other's skill and hard work and become best friends and all that good stuff. And in that movie, the uh, the the black player, the black student, goes to visit after him and his and his uh, white teammate have become good buddies. But there's still tension and the white teammate still hasn't brought him over to his house to meet his mom. And his mom is still like, why are you hanging out with that black guy? But eventually she sees how important the friendship is. And so he goes, the black guy goes over to his best friend's house to meet his mom. And the mom tries to shake his hand and she and he gives her a big hug and, you know, lifts her in the air and she's laughing. And, you know, it's heartwarming and apparently it's based off a true story. I don't know how true that scene was. But things like that really happen in real life. You know, for me, that scene has very little cheesiness. It has very little melodramaticness because it happened in my own life. That's how my grandmother and my father met. You know, it's kind of inspiring to think that, wow, my dad beat Hollywood to the punch. You know, that's what love and, I don't know, being of sound character, of good character, that's what it means, you know. And ever since then, I remember memories of my grandmother and my father they you know my dad never learned to speak Japanese really well my grandmother couldn't speak any English, but they always had big greetings for each other, called each other's names you know hey, hey. my mom my dad would say How about you your grandmother my my grandmother would refer to my father as Yang young son, young is my last name, and you know they would hey, hey. that's it the extent of their conversations ha hey, hey. it's good to see each other. But that love and that warmth is definitely something I'll never forget. Uh, Yeah. So that's one of the big things I remember. And you know, just things you grow up with, certain ideas of identity. Um, I remember playing with my brother. We were running around. um, Playing um, Ninja. We were running around saying, Ninja, Ninja. And sword chopping and throwing fake shooting stars, and I don't know what went through my mom's mind. We were obviously running around doing sword fighting ninja-like stuff, but somehow the word ninja, despite the fact that my mom's Japanese, my mom somehow misheard the word ninja as an, as an, you know, as the other N-word, the, you know, the other word that's used for people who are dark, except dark of skin, not dressed in dark cloth. You know, but you, you know, so my mom misheard the word ninja is the word nigga. Yeah. I don't even like saying it. Ooh, it's uncomfortable, but that's okay. Anyways, you guys know what I mean. So she misunderstood. She misheard. I think I was like eight years old, four, seven years old. My brother was like three and like grabbed us or stopped us in our tracks and looked at us and was we like, <gasps> don't you ever say that word. And of course our first reaction is do not ever say darkly clad Ancient warriors of Japan? Like, what? Like, it was you know, kind of confusing. And, and my memory of it is that I already knew that word. Like, I didn't, I was surprised that my mom stopped me because I was just totally saying something else. But I don't have a memory of going, what is this word she's talking about? She explained that it's a bad word. There's this bad other word that's bad. Don't say it. And I was like, we were saying ninja. And she's like, don't say Okay. But don't still, still don't say the other word. And I'm like, okay. That was not going to. Will not. And kind of moved on from there, but I remember kind of thinking, I have. a remember feeling, and this is probably very retrospect. I remember feeling of going like, "Yeah, we weren't saying that word. I know that's bad." And I, but I don't know how or when I learned that that word existed and that it was bad. I just kind of somehow innately knew. So that was interesting. But that's just you know how memory works. I probably didn't have any idea what my mom was talking about, and just like kind of stored that in my mind. And then in the future, when I understood what was happening or what that word meant. Probably remembered that lesson, but who knows how memory works. So, you know, that's. And the other thing that stands out, you know, so my mom, yeah, you know, so the first lesson I had about race or about being black was from my mom. My Japanese mom, who comes from northern Japan, who had probably never seen a black person in real life, in person, until she was past 20. It's kind of interesting. You know, but, um, and then, you know, after that, I remember one of my other big things about identity was, um, when we were living in Kyushu, Southern Japan, and I was maybe about, I think I was 16, going on 17, my brother was, you know, he'd be about 12, and he was either in sixth grade, maybe he was already in junior high school, first year, and he um, him and his buddy skipped school. And uh, near our housing area that we used to live at, there was a little fishing village or like kind of a harbor area. And there were some fishermen's boats. And my brother and his friends said to go joyriding in someone's boat. And I don't know the details. I wasn't there that day. Um, but eventually they got caught by the police. And eventually, you know, in the evening, me and my dad had to go for a drive to the police station and pick up my brother. And my dad was like, you know, wanted to slap the shit out of my brother right there at the police station. And and the police officer was like, oh, calm down, you know, don't hit your son. And my brother tells me later that he was just looking at the police officers like he was so incredulous because he remembers being chased by the police officer and basically being smacked around by the police officer. And the cool thing about my brother is even at that age, he never wanted, to, he was incredulous at the police officers for saying that to my dad. But he never said to my dad that the police officers hit him because he did not want to make my dad like not only angry but he didn't want to sad and you know he didn't want my dad to know that is he didn't want yeah didn't want my dad to be sad or hurt you know angered and hurt that his son was getting abused by these police officers um not all the police officers or it wasn't like a cabal of abusive police officers i'm sure my brother's running around and you know the police officers had to make chase and you know it's annoying you get pissed off and and I, I'm sure that's how basically my brother looks at it. You know, he knows he was bad, and he's sure the police officer shouldn't have smacked him. Of course not, but you know whatever. That's that, and I don't think that's that big deal. I think just my brother had that 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 uh, clarity of mind to be like, yeah, you know, it's not like I suffered any permanent physical damage from these idiots, you know, these stupid policemen. I'm just gonna keep that quiet so my dad doesn't have something else to you know be upset and sad about or angered about. So we're in the car and driving back home and, um, you know, my dad's just angry, you know, he's driving the car. My brother's sitting up in the front seat. I'm sitting in the back. Um, My dad's just like, what were you thinking? You know, all the typical things, you know. And I think my my dad went like, what were you thinking? Or asked my brother a question that was like, kind of, you know. In a sense, a question in a way he wanted to answer, but on the other way, on the other hand, it's completely a rhetorical question. You know, it's like, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking that it would be fun to write a boat. Yeah, you don't really want to hear that. It's just that you say something, you ask a question. It's rhetorical. And at the same time, my brother's non-answer was also like kind of annoying at the same time. So like, it's like this annoyance. If I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, because it's the only question that you can ask someone when you're pissed off, because you're not really asking them anything, you're just telling them, you know are you insane? But you go, are you insane? You know, you do it as a question. And my brother's like, you know, like, whatever, what, what can you do? You know, he's in trouble. He's just kind of shrinking in the seat and he just knows he's in trouble. And that non-reaction kind of answer, non-answer like to my dad, it was just like, he was just like, <laughs> he just, oh, I love it to this day. You know, I'll never forget. My dad just said to him, don't make me whoop your black ass. And I just remembered thinking, "Wow, we're black." <laughs> I, it was just this moment that it's not like there was any. My brother went joyriding and you know and made trouble and got in trouble by the police, and it technically had nothing to do with race. Although I'm sure the police officers were probably like, "Oh, these bad brown kids, you know, running around." I don't know what the police officers thought, but. But, um, and we were not at the police station, we were in the car, but it was just this moment of like, you know, when my dad whoops his kids, he's thinking, yeah, I'm moving my black kids, you know, just, wow. That identity is just like built into us. It's like coded and you can't, it doesn't matter that your kid is half Japanese or your kid is American or speaks English or has white friends or whatever, lives in a multicultural society. When you're about to get in trouble and your dad's about to whoop your ass, it's your black ass that he's whooping. And I just thought, wow. Wow. You know, what a moment. It was interesting. I'll never forget that car ride. I can't say it was fun, but man, I'll never forget that car ride and my dad saying that. And the thing I sensed about it was, wow, like, it was kind of, I look back on it, and I think I was also kind of like, you know, you're raised so much of the time. My dad was in the Navy, and he was gone on the ship a long time, a lot of the time. And you're raised so much by your mother. But what made me, what it made me think about at that moment is that, you know, it doesn't matter if your father is not always on your case and not a, it doesn't make your meals and is not the one who's either comforting you or scolding you or, or teaching you something or just like parenting you all the time you're his son and he loves you. And that's an intense connection. And that it really solidified that for me. It's like, don't you, it, you know, because it had nothing to do because the situation didn't really have anything to do with being black. The situation, you know, was my brother was in trouble, but that's where my dad went, you know, and he, I'm sure it wasn't something he thought about deeply. He wasn't trying to teach a racial moment or method. He was probably just angry, but that's what a black dad does when he's angry. Says, I'm going to whoop your black ass, you know. Uh, I don't know what, you know, white parents do to their kids or what their emotional wellspring is. But that's the emotional wellspring of at least my dad. I don't know if it's that rare either. So anyway, um, yeah. And also speaking of all this racial stuff, um. Going to kind of fly off to another topic as I wrap this up. I want to keep these episodes short and and crisp and tight. Plus, possibly my roommate, my housemate might be home soon. And I'm talking to myself on a microphone. But um, it's okay. Um, The passing of Nelson Mandela. You know, quite uh, quite sad. And uh, while not a cinematic masterpiece on all levels or... You know, I really enjoyed the movie Invictus, the one about, you know, the 1995 Rugby World Cup, Matt Damon, Morgan Freeman. And, um, you know, I've actually seen that movie a lot. It was I just, I get into those kind of movies. They're not like, I don't think they're cinematic heavyweights as far as movies go, but I get into them and I really, they're kind of easy, in some ways, easy inspirations and kind of comforting Almost soul food like, or like a warm blanket like of a movie. I felt this way about Apollo 13. I love the American space program, so I get crazy about that too. And I love the, I watch Apollo 13 over and over and over, and I learned a little bit about the technicalities of going to space, and it's pretty cool going to the moon. So, same thing with Invictus. I watched it a lot. And, you know, it's the Hollywood setup movie and uh, a setup scene, but I remember the scene a little bit towards the, towards the end of the movie, the night before the big match. And Matt Damon's in the hotel room looking out the window and his girlfriend, or his fiance walks in and goes, you know, are you thinking about the big, you know, the big game? You're going to be OK. And he's like, nah, the game is taken care of either way. You know, that real sportsman like, hey, look, it's all up what you did up until then. You know, and then you go out there and you do your best championships. There's not much more you can do at that point. And he said, nah, but what I was thinking about is how does a man come out of prison after 30 years and then forgives all the people who put him there? You know, it doesn't come out with malice. And this is nothing new about Mandela. This is what we adore. What we adored of about him. What we adore about him. You know, he's gone, but I think we still have those same feelings, if not more so. So, you know. It's a pretty, um, I don't know. I, uh, it was pretty intense. It was times in the day where I just like, I could just stop right now, stop walking right now and just start crying. You know. I mean, I would say like, we have, many, we have many world leaders and many world figures. And you gotta say, of all the people who, you know, who wanted to, started out, you know, became a lawyer, wanted to do peaceful protests and eventually saw that, you know, you have to almost take a Malcolm X, you know, by any means necessary because of what's happening to the black people of South Africa at the time in the 60s. You know, quote unquote, terrorist went to jail angry, angered, even though at his trial, his speech was that, you know, he wanted to fight oppression by blacks, oppression by whites. He wanted to see, he already had a vision of a non-racial, non-racial or beyond racist race, race, beyond racism, beyond the racial aspect of the nation to a unified nation. He already had that in him. And even in the 80s, when the South African government apartheid government offered him release him if he renounced all violence he said no so you know this was not a man who was above violence or above the fight above the sacrifice of life to take the fight to where it needed to be but to come out and and exceed our expectations you know to not become one of those freedom leaders who then takes over and then becomes like a Mugabe and then basically destroys a nation and ruins a nation. You know, not one of those people that we had high hopes for. And then when they come out and they get power, we see their true nature, their dark side. He came out and from 1990 to 94, South Africa almost fell into a civil war, almost destroyed itself, but he managed to pull that pull through that, get to the elections, win the election, become the president, the first black president of a democratic South Africa. And then five years later, resign, said, I'm serving one term and I want the country to move on from here and to believe in, you know, reconciliation. And it's just amazing that someone could do that and not lose sight of that. Because so many times we put so much hope in a leader and they turn out to be something different, you know, and it, It's not about perfection. He wasn't a perfect man. You know, there's a lot of issues now even after his passing with his family and you got to wonder how much of that, you know, he was in prison for a long time. Essentially, he was an absentee father. Um, You got to wonder a little bit about the morality of, you know, his former wife. But whatever, you know. Um, You know, and some of the family members seems to be in squabbles. Not a lot of, you know, eh, not the most like yeah, yeah. not the most proud legacies for his family goes. But hey, he was one man. He wasn't perfect. Um, but what his his character and what he was able to do as a human being was amazing. And uh, what I think about all the time from his legacy and the movie is the poem that the movie is titled after, Invictus. And I don't know if you guys, how many of you have heard or seen the whole poem. It's not long. And I can't even in the movie, I don't know if they ever read all of it or if they do that thing where they cut something out. It's fairly short, so maybe they do read all of it overall. But anyway, I thought I'd leave you guys, um, with a reading of the poem before I do that. Um, just remember, yeah. So this has been Finding Japan and you can find the website and some posts and of course the other episodes, including the ones that Chris did all the way back all through the years at findingjapan.com. Um, yes, I promise a lot and under deliver all the time. I do want to start making this consistent. I do want to bring interviews, but I will also mix them in with these kind of solo shows. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it and I want to close out with kind of honoring the great man and reading this awesome poem that was written by William Ernest Henley in the 1800s. Uh, was some British guy or some Victorian fellow, and after he gotten injured or something, was recovering and something like that. He became inspired and wrote this poem, "Invictus." Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and finds and shall find. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul.